Okay, we're jumping in here about five minutes into class for the sake of the recording, which I forgot to start, but we're talking about plenary verbal inspiration and looking at the statement from Matthew 5 that not a jot or a tittle in the old King James will pass away until all is accomplished. Those words jot and tittle I want to illustrate for you and tell you exactly what they are. Anybody recognize this? What is that, Amy? Can you say it for us? Okay, not bad. It's the Hebrew alphabet. Now, take a look. Scan, scan across the letters there. And which is the littlest one? Right there. That's a yod. Or jot. It's the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And, it, and it, it, you're, you, when you read, uh, if, if you see a Hebrew text, it's, it's, it looks all squiggly and there are dots all over the place and it's easy to pass over that little yod. It's the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But I got a better one. Here's what a tittle is. That's the Hebrew letter um, roach. It's our R sound. And then here's the Hebrew letter kaf, which is sort of our K sound. They look a lot alike, don't they? Yeah. Here's the tittle. One is curved, one is square. The Greek word for that the old uh, authorized version translated tittle, the Greek word actually means a curve or a hook. And that's all it is. That's the only difference between those two letters. Here's, there's two more like that. That's, um, I'm sorry, uh, that one, that one right there is um, Dalit. That's our D sound. Sorry. Cough is coming. And there's the, there's the tittle. That's the little difference between them. This is cough, and this is bath, our K and our B sounds. They look a lot alike, don't they? And in a hurry, you might skip over that difference. But there's the tittle. It's just the difference between two letters. But what is Jesus saying? Every detail of the words of Scripture are inspired. They will not pass away until heaven and earth pass away. So our view of inspiration, it's not just academic to say we believe in plenary verbal inspiration. If we give up on the words and by implication the letters that form those words, if we say the inspiration does go, oh, it's not really that far, it's not really that detailed, then we've given up the whole thing because where do you stop? Because letters make words and words make up the whole thing. So, when Jesus says, um, not even a jot or a tittle, not the smallest stroke or letter will pass away, he's telling us that this book is trustworthy and reliable down to the tiniest, tiniest detail. So our view of inspiration is not just some academic exercise that it's plenary and verbal. It is, and we should be thankful that it is. Now, um, this is where the science called textual criticism comes in. Now, does that sound like a very friendly term? 
textual criticism. No, it sounds judgmental. And it sounds like you're going to sit down and tear the Bible apart with all your criticisms. That is not what textual criticism is. And there have been plenty of people who've done that, okay? Plenty of liberal theologians and scholars who tried to tear the Bible apart. That is not what textual criticism is. Textual criticism is the discipline that attempts to determine the original wording of any documents whose original no longer exists. People do textual criticism on the plays of Shakespeare to find out what did the actual manuscript that Shakespeare wrote, what did that say? And we have far fewer manuscripts of Shakespeare than we do of the Bible. And the Bible is way older. So textual criticism is a legitimate science. It's a legitimate study to take existing manuscripts and trace them back because the original no longer exists and what did that original actually say? Because we don't have the original manuscripts of the Bible anymore. They're long since gone. So textual criticism helps us discover the original wording of those documents. This was one of the most fascinating classes I took in seminary. And after a whole semester, I came away with a profound, deeper, stronger persuasion that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient word of God. That's what textual criticism did for me. And I dug out a paper I wrote December 13, 1973, before most of you were born. What? Yeah, and this was done on a manual typewriter. No, sorry, an electric typewriter. And you get down to the bottom of the page, you made a mistake, and, you, and I pulled my hair out. Ah! And I got a B minus on it. And the only comment... And my prof was really good. He was really, really good. But he said, proofread more carefully. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't criticize the content of my paper, but I, there's spelling mistakes and spacing mistakes and that kind of... This is not inspired, okay? Um, it, it, all of that is just to say that textual criticism was a very, very profitable study. And there's actually a science to it. And you can take all the families of manuscripts that exist, and you can see where mistakes crept in, and what kind of mistakes they are. And you keep tracing back and tracing back and tracing back and tracing back. And through the, through the discipline of textual criticism, we're able to compare all the various manuscripts of both the Old and New Testaments and actually determine what the original said. Here's a little, give you an idea of what kind of numbers we're talking about here. Uh, the writings of Caesar were written between 144 BC. Uh, the earliest copy we have of the writings of Caesar is not until 400 AD. That's a thousand year span and we only have 10 copies. Caesar was a big dude. And that's all we got. And there was a long span between the time he wrote and the time we have and the oldest copy we have. And uh, look at the rest of them. Plato, Thucydides, Tacitus, um, Suetonius, Homer is the biggest guy next to the Bible. Uh, he wrote the Iliad in 900 BC. The earliest copy we have of the Iliad date back to 400 BC. That's a 500 year gap. And we have 643 manuscripts of the Iliad. Now look at the Bible. 
Just the New Testament, for example. It was written between years of, of about 40 to 100 AD when the Apostle John died in the 90s. Um, the earliest manuscript we have, it's just a tiny little piece, and I'll show it to you in a minute, com dates from 125 AD. That's only a gap of 25 to 50 years, and we have 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. That's, that's Greek and all the other languages that it was translated into. That's how many extant manuscripts we have of the New Testament. What does that say to you? The Bible is different in a supernatural way because God supernaturally preserved the scriptures even through the process of copying and copying and copying and copying and copying and copying and copying. So here, here's what... Um, some of them look like. We have about 5,800 Greek manuscripts. Just, and the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. It was written in the common street language that everybody spoke in the Roman Empire in those days. Koine Greek. It wasn't classical Greek. It wasn't the highbrow stuff. It was common, ordinary day street language, which, which is why it's legit to translate those manuscripts into the common language that we speak. Okay? Um, this is Codex Vaticanus. It's the largest, oldest, almost complete manuscript we have of the, New Te of the Bible. It's got the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and uh, almost an entire New Testament. It dates from the 4th century A.D. Um, some of the manuscripts are just scraps like this, and this is the oldest one. This is known as P52. There'll be a quiz later, and you've got to know that this is called P52. It's, it's a few verses, front and back. Uh, the left side is front, the right side is the back of John chapter 18. And that dates from 125 AD. Just a few, just a couple of decades after the Apostle John passed away. And every manuscript we discover confirms the legitimacy of the text we have. Well, remember when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, of the Old Testament? And they were 400 years older than anything we had had up to that point. And they confirmed the text we had word for word. It's huge. That's huge. So, um, the, the earliest dates back to the early 2nd century. And if you take all the readings where there is still some question as to what the original manuscript said, out of the 500 pages of, this is my old Greek New Testament they used in school. It's, it's actually um, about 650 pages. All the, out of these 650 pages, if you take all the readings where there's still some question about what the original was, they amount to a half a page. And they have to do with things like word order, differences in spelling, or the order of events. And they affect no teaching whatsoever of scripture. So the bottom line of textual criticism is that the text we hold in our hands is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. No other written text has that kind of support in all the world, which says that God superintended the preservation of his word. Now, just another word about inspiration before we move on to <clears throat> inerrancy. Um, when Paul wrote 
this well-known statement about inspiration. He was talking primarily about the Old Testament. All scripture is inspired of God. From childhood, you've known the sacred writings. Well, what did, what did Timothy have available when Paul wrote this? All he had was the Old Testament. So when he says all scripture is given by inspiration of God, he's talking primarily about the Old Testament. Um, they were the only scriptures they had at that point. The Old Testament is so clear on its inspiration. The expression, thus says the Lord, occurs over 400 times in the Old Testament. The expression, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah the prophet, or Jeremiah the prophet, or Ezekiel, that occurs over 100 times in the Old Testament. You have Jesus' own affirmation of the truth of the Old Testament over and over and over again in the, in the New Testament. But think about the New Testament for a second. This is, a, this is a fascinating argument to me. Not too many people question the inspiration of the Old Testament because Jesus affirms it. Paul talks about it right here. But what does it say about the New Testament? The use of the word scripture came to be a technical term for the very words of God. That's how Paul used it in 2 Timothy 3. He talked about the sacred writings and then he called them scripture, referring to the very words of God. Now, look at a couple of passages here. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, what, who or what says to Pharaoh? Hello. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. That's Romans 9, 17. Now go back. The scripture says, okay? Now go back to the Old Testament where it actually says that. Then, next two words. What? Really? I thought Paul said scripture says. The actual account in the Old Testament says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning, stand before Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go. For this cause I have allowed you to remain in order that you may show my power and in order to proclaim my name throughout the whole earth. Paul is quoting Exodus 9. And when Paul quotes it, he says, The scripture says, and when we go back and read the actual occurrence of that statement in Exodus Chapter 9, it says, the Lord said. Thus says the Lord. What conclusion do you draw? Scripture equals the words of God. Right? And the scripture, Galatians 3, 8, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before unto Abram, saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. The scripture says, Here's the statement, Genesis 22. By myself I've sworn, declares the Lord. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The scripture says, the Lord declares. What's that mean? Scripture equals the words of God. <clears throat> now we come to the New Testament and uh, the scripture says, this is Paul in 1 Timothy 5, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Scripture says two things. Don't muzzle the ox, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Where does don't muzzle the ox come from? Deuteronomy 25.4. Where does the laborer is worthy of his wages come from? We're talking about scripture here. The scripture says both of these things. The laborer is worthy of his wages comes from Luke 10, 7. It's the words of Jesus. 
Paul said, the words of Jesus are scripture. Paul says the gospel of Luke is scripture. You see? So, do we have a problem with the New Testament being scripture? And scripture being the words of God? It affirms that. Um, <clears throat> one more text, 2 Peter three fifteen and 16. <clears throat> this is jumping into the middle of this sentence. In regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking of them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. We all get that, don't we? There are some things Paul wrote that are hard to understand. We're good with that which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own discretion. What, draw a conclusion from that. What does it say about the writings of Paul? That they're what? They're what? They're scripture. And if the way the Bible used the word scripture is true, that scripture equals the words of God, what is Peter saying about the body of stuff Paul wrote. It's what? It's the words of God. It's the words of God. So, do we have a trustworthy book in our hands? Absolutely. Inspired, inerrant, infallible, inspired in all of it, inspired in every word of it. Okay. Um, uh, do you have any questions? Except for Rich. Well, mine's a simple one. So okay, I'm go. I ask you first. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, because, you're, because you're teaching this, there's so many different versions of the Bible now. Yeah. So the authenticity and the, you know, <clears throat> the versions of a lot of them are, could trace it back to the original aren't scripture at all. In our day, there's so many. What, what is your recommendation personally or? That's really a large question. That, that's a large question, and it takes us back to um, your philosophy of translation. There, there are two major philosophies of translation. One is formal equivalence, and the other is dynamic equivalence. Formal equivalence is basically a word-for-word -word translation. Um, you take the original manuscripts of <coughs> the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you translate word for word. Now, technically that is utterly impossible to do. Because how are you going to translate, for a Chinese speaker, how are you going to translate, he's a peach of a guy. How are you going to translate that? Can you use the Chinese word for peach? When that idiom means nothing to a Chinese speaker? No, you've got to find a way to say that exact thing and you may need to change the word, okay? So even formal equivalence sometimes is not technically formal. You, know, you understand what I'm saying? The other, the other philosophy in translation is dynamic equivalence, and you go for the idea. Now, which of those two is more likely to lead you to a translation that becomes less and less accurate? Dynamic equivalence. Dynamic equivalence. Um, the ESV, the... Uh, New American Standard, which is one I've, I've used it for years, and it's just hard to break away from that. Um, there's one that um, 
that Pastor Jonathan used all the time. Holman, Holman, the Holman Christian Standard. Something that those are those are basically formal equivalent translations. The NIV is a more dynamic equivalent translation. Now, it's some of the the NIV is is one of the better dynamic equivalent translations, but there are some that just really go off the deep end. Um, so uh, that, that raises the whole philosophy of translation, all the rest of it. But um, uh, uh, the, uh, the King James, the old King James, the new King James, are accurate translations. But we don't speak old King James, we don't speak 16th century Elizabethan English. Um, dost thou? Thou dost not. So get us over that one. That's a good question. Any, any other questions? Okay. The Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible, plenary, verbal, inspired word of God. Mike, I have a question. So what? The Bible is inspired in all of it and in its details. So what? If inspiration is true, what does that mean? So what? There's both... I want to give you a theological answer to that question and a practical answer to that question. If inspiration is true, and the Bible is the very words of God, and I said it that way on purpose, the Bible is the words. I'm an English teacher. I've got a singular subject and a plural verb. I mean a plural... Uh, uh, predicate noun the Bible is the words but I'm saying it that way on purpose because it is it is all the words if the Bible is the very words of God then inerrancy and infallibility must follow inerrancy and infallibility must follow inerrancy simply means the Bible is free from error means that when all the facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs, the original manuscripts, are pro and properly interpreted, will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with the social, physical, or life sciences. That's from a guy named Paul Feinberg who passed away in 2004. He taught at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Dallas Theology Seminary. And uh, John MacArthur uh, quotes from him as, as sections in his book, uh, The Scripture Cannot Be Broken by Paul Feinberg. He's a reliable scholar. He's a good guy. That's what, he's, <clears throat> that's what he said about, <clears throat> about inerrancy. That the Bible is without error in everything it affirms, whether it has to do with doctrine, morality, or the social, physical, or life sciences. Infallibility, here's the one I'm looking for means simply the Bible is incapable of error. Um, so here's a real simple way to look at that. Uh, if inspiration is true, then inerrancy, that the Bible is without any errors, and infallibility, that the Bible is incapable of errors, must follow. Why do we say that? If we understand what the Bible teaches us about God, 
and his nature and his character, we'll see why inerrancy and infallibility are the necessary consequences of the Bible being God's very own word. And that's what this chapter is about in our books. Ashley. So, and we may or may not cover this, so I can talk to you afterwards about it, but I was just curious if um, we'll cover, so with the inerrancy and fallibility of the word, are we going to talk about what we have as the Bible um, in arguments with like um, the Apocrypha <coughs> other books that have been taken out of the canon? There's a, there's a chapter coming up. Okay. Uh, on canonicity. Okay, okay. And I'm sure it'll come up in that chapter. It's about three or four chapters down the road yet. But can we hang yeah, on to that absolutely. for that chapter? Yeah. Sure. Thanks. Um, all right, so I want to take a look for a second and see what the Bible says about God and his words to show you that inerrancy and infallibility are the necessary consequence, consequences of inspiration. Inspiration tells us that the Bible is the very words of God. Okay, we good on that? When we open this book, I like to, I like to tell the kids at school that when, when you read this book, or when I stand in front of you and I read from this book, it's just as much the word of God as if God himself suddenly, kaboom, here he's standing in person and he's speaking. Does that, does that resonate? If this is the inspired and errant infallible word of God, then when you read this, it's as if God himself were standing right there talking with his mouth into your ear and you're hearing sound waves come out of his mouth and it's this. That's how much this is the word of God. Okay, so, uh, If that's true, then inerrancy and infallibility must follow. All right, let's look at... Um, Let's look at what the Bible says. Numbers 23, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? What is God incapable of? God can do anything, but what is God incapable of? Lying. Lying. He cannot lie. Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified sometimes. What do you do when you refine precious metals? You get out all the, all the impurities, all the dross, all the, all the garbage that's not really silver or gold or whatever it is you're refining. The words of the Lord are pure words. There's nothing inappropriate. There's not, that's not the right word. There's nothing impure in those words. Okay? This God, Psalm 18, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. Why does it prove true? Because this God is perfect. And there's no falsehood in him. And he cannot lie. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. It doesn't change. The sum of your word is... Hello? truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever the precepts of the lord are right rejoicing the heart the commandment of the lord is pure enlightening the eyes and scripture cannot be broken that's a little statement out of the middle of john 10:35 the scriptures cannot be broken 
when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide. This is Jesus talking to his disciples about what's going to happen after he leaves. And he's going to give them the Holy Spirit to help them. And one of the ways, one of the things he will do is he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak in his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, it is what? Impossible, impossible for God to lie. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. I'll give you another example of that in just a second. The inescapable conclusion, when we see what the Bible has to say about the character of God, the inescapable conclusion is that God who is truth always speaks truth. He cannot lie, he cannot be mistaken, he cannot speak error. So, if the Bible is inspired, which means it's the words that God breathed out, then what must follow? Inerrancy. It has no errors. And infallibility. It's incapable of errors because it's whose word? God's word. Are you capable of errors? <laughs> Hello? <laughs> Am I capable of errors? Uh, I'll listen to the recording and see how many I made today. Yes. Is God capable of speaking error? No. No. And does the Bible touch on more than just theological things? Does it talk about social life? The socialites of the, of the Jews. Does it talk about scientific things? Yes, it does. Does it talk about creation? Yes, it does. It talks about a lot of things, ordinary, everyday parts of life that aren't theology. When God speaks about those things, is he capable of speaking error? Yes or no? No. Because he is true. And his words, all of them, are pure and refined. And true altogether. So, the, the, the inescapable conclusion, and I keep saying that because I want it drilled into our hearts and minds, is that God who is truth always speaks truth. He cannot lie. He cannot be mistaken. He cannot speak error. And the New Testament affirms this. If what we've already seen isn't enough, with this little expression I just referred to a second ago, that we may be tempted to pass right over when we read our Bibles. It's in Luke 22 and again in Luke 24. Uh, Luke uh, twenty-two thirty-seven. I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. There are a lot of other statements in the New Testament that say what was spoken by the prophet that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled. Might be. It's not that it might or might not be. It's just a milder form of that same verb that is used here in Luke twenty-two. But in Luke twenty-two, and again in Luke twenty-four, it's it's as if it's as if the Bible is hammering this home to us and not just the verb fulfilled is used, but another verb is attached to it. So we've got two verbs, one right after the other, and it says it must be fulfilled. 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Why must they be fulfilled? <clears throat> are, are we in trouble if something that was prophesied in the Prophets or the Psalms or the Law, are we in trouble if something doesn't come to pass that said it was going to come to pass? We're in trouble big time. Thank you, if that doesn't happen. Because God's words are always true. And so Jesus said, well, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Why must they be? Because God said them. Because God said them. <clears throat> why this insistence because if God said it it's going to happen if God said it's going to happen it has to happen because he speaks the truth all the time now not everybody who claims to believe in the inspiration of the Bible believes in inerrancy and infallibility their basic position is that when the Bible speaks on issues of faith and practice, what we're to believe and do, then it's accurate and without error. But when it speaks on other issues, things like science or history or geography, then it's subject to error and it, and it can make mistakes. Do you see the problem with that? Sorry? Yeah. Here, if, if, I can, if I can do it in a, maybe a silly little way, but it's really true. If there are mistakes in Scripture at any point, then it opens the door for mistakes at any point. And they themselves have to be the one to figure out what the mistakes are. And then what becomes the standard? My brain becomes the standard of what is accurate and what is inaccurate. How can... How can <clears throat> We're accused of circuit reasoning when we say the Bible teaches its own view of the Bible. The Bible teaches this view of inspiration, that's circuit reasoning. Well, how can anything outside the Bible judge the Bible? Because the Bible is the Word of God. We've got to have something bigger than God. If we're going outside the Bible to determine whether or not the Bible is the Bible, the Word of God, then we've got to be bigger than God. And that's exactly what happens when we say the Bible makes mistakes in these areas that quote-unquote, are not critical to faith and practice. We've made ourselves bigger than the Bible. we made ourselves bigger than God, and we've said, here's where it makes mistakes. So, when... Um, let me go back and find the statement. Um, there's a same by Paul Feinberg. Um, it may have just been up oh here it is here it is um, <clears throat> whether inerrancy means that when all the facts are known the scriptures and their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything they affirm whether that has to do with doctrine and morality or the social physical or life sciences there was a reason he said that because there are people who claim to be evangelical and they teach at some evangelical seminaries who believe in inspiration but do not believe in inerrancy and infallibility. 
those things must follow if we believe in inspiration. So if there are mistakes in Scripture at any point, it opens the door for mistakes at any point, even theological. And what that means is that we, with our fallen and fallible minds, become the determiners of what is and isn't important in the Bible. So critics of inerrancy also point out that there are errors in the Bible. How can it be infallible? And your textbook gives us five examples of that, and I'm, I'm going to just uh, buzz through these uh, real quickly. Uh, the first one they give is the example of ordinary speech. We describe things as they appear, which may not always be scientifically accurate, but no one assumes that we're speaking airy when we say the sun rises and sets. Right? How many times have you been challenged? Hey, knucklehead, don't you know that the sun doesn't rise and set, that the earth revolves around the sun? Where did you get that piece of antiquated understanding? Go get yourself an education. Have you, has anybody ever said that to you? No. Ordinary speech. We speak as things appear. It appears that the sun rises and sun sets. We don't feel like we're doing this all day. Here's the, here's the sun. We don't feel like that. It looks like the sun comes up and the sun goes down. The Bible speaks like that. Is that error? No, it's ordinary language. It's just how we speak. It's the way, the Bible uses language that reflects the way we observe the world around us. They make a big deal about, oh sorry, ordinary speech. They make a big deal about loose quotations. Some New Testament quotes of the Old Testament are exact word for word. Some are paraphrases. Some are from the Hebrew text. Some are from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. They're not mistakes. They're simply different types of quotations. What do you say when, when husbands, when you get off the phone, having talked to a friend of yours, and your wife says, what did they say? <laughs> I, I've just hung myself, okay? <laughs> what did they say? If you, <laughs> if you don't spit out every last single syllable of what they said, you're in error. <laughs> no, you're not. You might be in trouble, but you're not in error. Okay? We do that all the time. And we're not speaking error. There are all different ways you can quote somebody else. You can quote them exactly word for word and you use quotation marks. You can paraphrase. You can give the general gist of something. And the writers of the New Testament did that. Does that mean they were making a big mistake? No. Because they were giving that quote, whatever form it took, exact words, paraphrase, general idea, they were doing that under the what? Inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so... Exact quotes, um, or loose quotations. Uh, the translation of the words of Jesus. Jesus may have taught a good deal in Aramaic, but the New Testament was written in Greek. So what we have are translations of Jesus' words. Does that undo the doctrine of inerrancy? Not at all. 
especially when you consider that the Holy Spirit of truth was given to the writers of the New Testament to recall all that Jesus said to them, and they wrote it down in the common language known throughout the Roman Empire as Koine Greek. Jesus may have said it in Aramaic, they wrote it in Koine Greek. Is that a problem? Not if Jesus wanted the readers to understand his words. Okay? Should we have the Bible in German? Should we? Of course we should. But I can't read it. I used to be I used to be able to read a little bit of Hebrew. But I am so glad that I have an English Old Testament. I used to be able to read quite a bit of Greek. I took five years of it in school. But I'm so glad. That was back in the 70s. I'm so glad that I have an English New Testament. Is that a problem? No. It's the way, if, 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 if the words of God are going to have an impact on me, I need to be able to understand them. As, as the readers of the New Testament did. <clears throat> so, translating the words of Jesus when he spoke Aramaic, and Aramaic and they're translated into Greek. <clears throat> Especially understanding that when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, and he will not speak on his own, but whatever he hears, he will speak. Um, uh, that's what I just quoted from um, John about the Spirit being our helper. Different ordering of events and divergent parallel accounts. Accounts of the same event that are a little bit different. Um, the Gospels lay out for us, all of them, all four Gospels, lay out for us the life and ministry of Jesus. But they don't all do it in exactly the same order or with exactly the same details. They have different audiences, they have different purposes, they have different perspectives. So... Um, the healing of um, blind Bartimaeus, which is one of my all-time favorite Bible stories from John chapter 9. Right outside Jericho. Two of the Gospels say blind Bartimaeus. One of the Gospels says there were two blind men. Do you have a problem with that? Why? Why not? There were obviously two blind men that were healed. But two of the gospel writers get out their, their zoom lens and they focus in on Bartimaeus. How, what's the problem with that? But, but critics, in the critical sense of critics, not in the textual criticism sense, but critics camp all over statements like that and say, oh, see, the Bible contradicts itself. One writer says it was one, one writer says it was two. Well, of course there was two. The other writer just focused on one. And probably not the best illustration, but, but you, get, uh, you, you come upon an accident. There, an accident happens right in front of you. You're driving in your car, and you see it from one perspective, and the guy that was standing on the sidewalk sees it from a different perspective, and the guy that was coming the other direction and saw the same accident sees it from a different perspective. Who's right? You all are. You all are. So, when, when you read the New Testament and you find parallel accounts that, that diverge, 
at some point. They're different at some point. Does that automatically raise the red flag of, oh, conflict, there are mistakes in the Bible? No. No. And even if we don't see a clear path to resolve those two accounts, then who am I with my puny, proud, fallen, fallible, broken mind to say that because I can't see the resolution, therefore it's wrong. Leave that to God. Because the Bible says enough about its clarity, and we're coming to a chapter on the clarity of Scripture in a couple of weeks. The Bible says enough about the reliability and the infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture to know that there's a resolution to that apparent conflict that I can't resolve, but God's got this. Okay? And those, those um, situations of apparent conflict are tiny, tiny, tiny. They're minuscule in terms of the whole scope of Scripture. Um, I said earlier, oh, let me give you, let me give you a quote from your book. This is, this is a really good statement. The church is called to trust everything that it affirms, that the Bible affirms. Creation out of nothing, God's providential care, the miracles of Jesus Christ, instructions about human sexuality and marriage, salvation by faith alone, and more. This has kind of taken us into the practical answer to the question, so what? So what if the Bible is inspired, inerrant, and infallible? So what? Here's so what. The church is called to trust the Bible when it speaks to these issues that in some ways are so controversial. Creation out of nothing, God's providential care, the miracles, instructions about human sexuality and marriage, salvation by faith alone, and more. That's the so what. If the Bible is true, inspired, inerrant, and infallible, then I need to trust it wherever it speaks. But let me give you a couple others, and uh, we got to quit with these. Here, here's, the, here's, the, here's the practical so what. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. <laughs> really? Yes. If this is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God, then what should I do with this? Do it! I should do it! I should obey it! Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. If this is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of the living God, then do it. Then do it. Let me recommend two books to you. An older book that was written by uh, a guy named Edward J. Young, uh, professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia for about 30 years back in the, from about 36 to 68. Thy Word is Truth, a really good book on uh, the scriptures and um, a book that was published in 2015, edited by John MacArthur called The Scripture Cannot Be Broken. If you want to really jump into these subjects in a lot of detail, these uh, I'd highly recommend either of these books.
Okay. All right. That's, uh, any uh, last question? You have thirty seconds. Going once. Going twice. Gone. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the book that we hold in our hands. Thank you that it is altogether trustworthy, without error, and incapable of error. Thank you that in your kind, good, wise, sovereign providence, you preserved this book for us. May we love it. May we read it. May we obey it. And may we hear it now in the hour to come. May we hear it with faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, gentlemen, let's remember to set tables up for the lunchroom tomorrow. Thank you.